You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Similarities are found between Sunburst backdoor code and the malware used by Turla. CISA expands advice on dealing with Solorigate. Courts revert on paper and USB drives. More members of the U.S. Congress report devices stolen during last week's riot. Online inspiration for violence seems distributed, not centralized. Caleb Barlow examines protocols for handling inbound intel. Rick Howard looks at Solorigate through the lens of first principles. And platforms as publishers... From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, January 11th, 2021. Kaspersky reports finding code similarities between the Sunburst backdoor in SolarWinds Orion platform and a known backdoor, Kazuar, which Palo Alto Networks in 2017 associated with the Turla threat group. Kaspersky is cautious about attribution and notes that there are several possibilities. It could be that Sunburst and Kazuar are the work of the same threat group. could be that Sunburst's developers borrowed from Kazuar or that both backdoors derived from a common source. It's possible that Kazur's developers jumped ship to another threat group and there produced Kazur, or whoever developed Sunburst deliberately introduced the clues into their code in the interest of flying a false flag. Reuters points out that Estonian intelligence services have long attributed Turla activity to Russia's FSB, which was unavailable to Reuters for comment. In an updated advisory concerning Solorigate that CISA issued late Friday, the agency released detection and mitigation advice for post-compromise activity in the Microsoft 365 and Azure environment. CISA recommends three openly available PowerShell tools for detecting malicious activity in this environment. CISA's Sparrow, the widely available open-source utility Kitty Hawk, and CrowdStrike's Azure reporting tool. CISA also redistributes Microsoft's guidance for recognizing and stopping exploitation at the four distinct stages of an incursion into its environment. Stage 1 involves forging a trusted authentication token used to access resources that trust the on-premises identity provider. Stage 2 moves on to using the forged authentication token to create configuration changes in the service provider, such as Azure AD, that's establishing a foothold, In Stage 3, the threat actor works on acquiring a zero-auth access token for the application using the forged credentials added to an existing application or service principle and calling APIs with the permissions assigned to that application. 
And finally, in Stage 4, once access has been established, the threat actor uses Microsoft Graph API to conduct action on objectives from an external RESTful API, queries impersonating existing applications. The full text of the alert can be found on CISA's website. At least some courts affected by the Solarigate incident have reverted to older manual systems for handling their documents. The U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio, for one, has responded to Solorigate by requiring that court documents be filed on paper, or at least in a removable USB drive, the Columbus Dispatch reports. The Dispatch writes, quote, The federal court considers applications for a search warrant, electronic surveillance, and pen register or trap and trace devices highly sensitive. Based on the circumstances, some filings, like Social Security records, administrative immigration records, and sealed filings in civil matters, may be designated highly sensitive by the court, end quote. Any such documents will now be submitted in either two paper copies or on a USB drive, along with certificate and service. We trust the USB drives will be properly screened before they're plugged into the court system. Among other things, the decision shows how difficult it is to completely free oneself from digital records. Physical loss of devices remains the most serious concern for cybersecurity following last week's riot in the U.S. Capitol. Since the Wednesday unrest, other members of Congress, including Speaker of the House Pelosi, have also reported that laptops were taken from their offices, according to Reuters. The Wall Street Journal has an account of how the unrest was inspired and authorized via social media. Unlike many, perhaps most, other cases of online incitement, The journal reports that experts who've taken an early preliminary look at the incident think that the inspiration was a lot more distributed than it's usually been, with less top-down direction, fewer high-profile leaders, and a lot more of what we've come to call virality. As the journal puts it, quote, the Capitol riot doesn't appear to have been orchestrated by a central figure or organization, end quote. The agitation has been in progress for weeks, and it proceeded through a large number of channels and across many platforms. One expert quoted by the journal said they didn't need central planning. That said, many large Internet companies were quick to deplatform U.S. President Trump and various supporters in response to the president's encouragement of demonstrations earlier in the week. Axios lists Reddit, Twitch, Shopify, Twitter, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Apple, Discord, Pinterest, and Stripe. Bellingcat predicted last Monday that significant disruption would occur on Capitol Hill as electoral votes were formally counted. The Wall Street Journal reports that both Apple and Amazon have taken action against Parler, a social platform whose declared mission is to provide a conservative alternative to what Parler characterizes as the general progressive bias of platforms like Twitter and so forth. Parler is suing Amazon in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington, seeking injunctive relief, including a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunctive relief and damages. Parler is claiming an anti-competitive bias by Amazon. The company notes that Amazon provides equivalent services to both Twitter and Parler, yet only Parler was singled out for silencing on the grounds that it wasn't filtering content that amounted to incitement to violence. The filing observes that, quote, Friday night, one of the top trending tweets on Twitter was hang Mike Pence. But AWS has no plans, nor has it made any threats to suspend Twitter's account, end quote. 
Parler says it does have content moderation designed to stop incitement, but Amazon says that whatever Parler's review boards are doing, it's not enough. An op-ed in the New York Times thinks the lesson to be drawn from the deplatforming is that tech companies hold a great deal of power over online discourse, and that power tends to be exercised from the top on the basis of gut decisions by executives and not in conformity with established quasi-due process criteria. The American Civil Liberties Union says it understands the desire to ban President Trump from big tech's platforms, quote, but it should concern everyone when companies like Facebook and Twitter wield the unchecked power to remove people from platforms that have become indispensable for the speech of billions, especially when political realities make those decisions easier, end quote. The implications of the controversy and the ban won't be confined to the U.S. Computing reports, for example, that British Health Secretary Matt Hancock has said that it seems clear that social platforms are now acting much more like publishers than Public Square. He took no position on the deplatforming, nor did he offer any prescriptions for the future. But he said the companies are, quote, choosing who should and shouldn't have a voice on their platform, end quote and that recognizing this should inform any regulations governments might enact. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer and also chief analyst. Rick, always great to have you back. Hey, Dave. So on this week's CSO Perspectives, you are talking about the SolarStorm attack campaign. That's the attack that used the SolarWinds Orion platform as the back door, which we now think potentially breached some 18,000 SolarWinds customers or so. But who's 18,000. Yeah, who's counting? <laughs> Gee whiz. But, uh, <laughs> but what's interesting about your approach here is that you're running it through the lens of first principle thinking. So what, what's going on here? Yeah, so for the past year on the CSO Perspectives podcast, I've been developing a set of cybersecurity strategy theories, you know, based on first principle thinking. And the key word here, Dave, is I'm using air quotes, theories, right? Because I haven't tried them anywhere. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. And so the question I've been asking myself uh, is, would they work? Would that set of theories prevent material impact in the real world? When the solar storm campaign came to light just before Christmas, I realized it was the perfect case study to examine if these theories worked. Right, right. Well, I mean, during the, the past year on CSO's perspectives, you've had this the, these strategies, these four strategies that, uh, that you say every cybersecurity executive should deploy. Let's use that as a starting point. First of all, what are the four strategies? Right, so in no particular order, here they are. Uh, intrusion kill chain prevention, zero trust, resilience, and risk assessment. Okay, uh, I'm no uh, cybersecurity Einstein here, but uh, <laughs> the solar storm campaign was a zero-day campaign, um, which means that the the entire attack sequence was stuff that had never been seen before. So wouldn't that kind of nullify the intrusion kill chain prevention strategy? Exactly right. All right, so... <laughs> Smarty pants? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, again, theory. <laughs> right. So uh, we have uh, from the back door, we get the SolarWinds Orion platform, and that's that supply chain attack we've been talking about for so long. And, and you know, just by the way, some researchers are saying that there might be a second supply chain backdoor involved, a Czech Republic company called JetBrains. They sell development Mm. tools to at least 70 of the Fortune 100 companies. So uh, they might be a second vector. All right, so we have a supply chain attack. In order to steal the secret key from an on-prem single sign-on server performing Active Directory Federation services, then using a golden SAML technique where the attackers forge trusted authentication tokens for cloud resources. Now, uh, these, this is a known, no known adversary campaign has used that attack sequence before. We've seen the tactics before, but they haven't been, ever been strung together in that particular way. So if we were way ahead of the curve and had prevention controls in place for all the known adversary campaigns, like, you know, the Russian cozy bears and the Chinese deep pandas, uh, that didn't right. help you here. Okay, so where does that leave you within, uh, like from a first principle strategy approach? Right, so it leaves us with the other three strategies, zero trust, resilience, and risk assessment. And I'm happy to Mm. say that I think these strategies would have most likely defeated this adversary campaign. And that's what we're talking about on the podcast this week. Mm. All right. Well, you know, before I let you go, um, in in some of our internal discussions on the the CyberWire's, uh, you know, Slack channels, uh, (laughs) we've been talking, and and by we, I mean you, have been very vocal (laughs) about um, the the problem with attribution with these attacks to the Russians and to the thing we talked about earlier. I mean, there's – these are new tools, um, and in – 
what I'm wondering is like we've had the FBI, we've had the NSA, we've had CISA and ODNI. They released a joint statement that blamed Russia, um, but yet still it's kind of like, hey, it was Russia. Believe us because we say so. (laughs) We haven't seen a lot of evidence, right? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, it's probably the Russians, okay? So, you know, think of, (laughs) (laughs) you know, if I was just going to say, just think of the supply chain attack they used in the Samhorn campaign, you know, against Ukraine. Uh, That smells eerily similar to the solar storm supply chain campaign, right? Mm. And, you know, and I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the intelligence community, but... Okay, their joint statement presented no evidence to support the accusation. They just said, you know, it's the Russians because, you know, we think so, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a zero-day campaign. None of us have any TTPs that match any other known campaigns like the Russian bears, like fancy and cozy and berserk and energetic and voodoo and venomous. None of that matches. So until we do, until they want to give us something to sink our teeth into, then I'm going to be more willing to settle with the adversary group name coined by FireEye uh, way at the beginning of this, which they called UNC2452. It really rolls off the tongue there, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it just, just doesn't sound like fancy. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, all this and more is part of CSO Perspectives. That is a podcast that is part of CyberWire Pro. You can learn more about that on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And joining me once again is Caleb Barlow. He is the CEO at Synergistech. Uh, Caleb, it's always great to have you back. Um, I I wanted to touch base with you on your insights on how an organization should handle inbound intelligence. So you're, you're, you're sitting there, you're minding your own business, you're keeping your organization secure. You get a call from outside the organization that says there's a security incident that requires your attention what do you do? How do you handle something like that? Well, Dave, let's probably start by talking about how not to handle it. And of course, <laughs> everyone that's ever done one of these, whether you're kind of a, a red teamer doing offensive security research or you're an executive that's had to make one of these calls, everybody has had one of these calls where it, it always starts with, does anybody know anyone that works there? Right. And, mm-hmm. and that that's probably first insight to the problem. Like, how do you even get to a company that's going to get them to pay attention. It's not like you can pick up the phone and call the help desk or the helpline right. for like product support and go, hey, um, you're about to go down in an hour with a ransomware incident. We just wanted to let somebody know. See um, it on Twitter every day. Every yeah. day somebody's asking that question. Yep. And then, of course, you know, when you do like get the CISO on the phone, it, it, if it starts with a, hey, I'm busy and why am I even here and who are you? followed by, well, that's impossible. You know, we've got great systems. <laughs> we have antivirus. That's impossible to happen, right? And right, right. I, I say this jokingly, but I swear everybody's had this conversation. And then, of course, mm. the worst is, well, you really need to talk to our legal team, which is, and we've seen instances of this, is sometimes followed up with a, you know, a tersely written letter from a law firm about how what you did is illegal or, you know, you didn't follow some channel or whatever, Right. So here's the thing. The first thing to realize is, I mean, there's, don't get me wrong, there's reputable people and there's not reputable people, but either way, you need to take this inbound intelligence. 
And you've got to look at it as intelligence. What can you learn from this? So someone, whether real or perceived, has information that you need about either you're being breached or you have some sort of vulnerability or maybe they found a bug in one of your products. And the first thing is to have those listening ears on, right? You're not under any obligation to talk to anyone about whether you're aware of that issue, uh, whether you know about it, whether you've responded to it, whether you have the defense for it, but listen to what they're telling you. The second thing, and I think this is the hardest thing for companies to realize, is that the person talking to you probably knows way more than they're telling you. Um, mm. and, and, and you need to kind of get underneath that. How do they know? Who else knows? You know, if it, and especially if it's coming from government, right? You have to understand that when government is telling you something, they may have more information on the classified side that they can't tell you about. Or if it's law enforcement, they may have another investigation. And it's, it's completely appropriate to ask, well, at least what's the sourcing on this? And oftentimes they'll tell you, well, you know, it came from another investigation, which I can't talk about. Or it came from, you know, some sources I can't talk about. But mm. the more you can understand, the better. And I think people are really, well, relatively awful at dealing with inbound intel. Hmm. Well, uh, so what do you recommend then? What's, uh, are the, what are the best practices in your mind? Well, first of all, remember that this is an opportunity to build a relationship, right? So if someone's giving you information, they have access to sources that you probably don't. And that may mean in the future, they have accesses to sources that you probably don't. So start by getting that contact information, understanding how they came across this, what type of work they do. And this sounds silly, Dave, but say thank you. Because that researcher is going to be more inclined to reach out to you in the future than if you're kind of terse or worse yet, give them some sort of legal response versus thanking them for giving you the information. Even if it's stuff you already know and might not do anything with, you might want their information in the future. Hmm. Yeah, I, it seems like so so often these conversations lead to uh, frustration on on both sides, and I, I I mean I can understand people having their guard up. I mean this could you know how do you know it's not a prank call, right? Uh, I, there's a dance that has to go on between the two parties here as you go down that path. Oh, what do you know? How do you know? Can I trust you? What? How much should I say? Um, and uh, it just as you say, you, you got to get past that. Well, and, and let's face it, the I know somebody network is alive and well in the world of intelligence, and. You know, odds are that the company giving you the information may not be the only one involved or the only one that's aware because usually by the time it's getting to you, two or three threat researchers from different places have looked at it. But let's also talk about an example of this where it can really go bad. You know, take the Spectre meltdown disclosure, and you probably remember that day from a few years mm -hmm. ago, right? I mean, this was, you know, held very tightly in a couple of companies because people were very worried about giving manufacturers time to respond to it. But a couple things happened. Not only did that information not get to all the parties that needed it, but you also saw that when it did get in some organizations, it didn't get to the right people, right? Because it started as a hardware discussion between hardware professionals. And, and it took some time before it got to all the security teams in those companies to properly address and deal with it. And, and I think, you know, and, and frankly, probably the biggest example in Spectre Meltdown is governments, you know, some of the people that need to know this information more than anybody were often the last to know. So, you know, we've got to think about not only how do we take in that information, but also what are our protocols and procedures to make sure it gets to 
all the right people within our organization and or potentially within our supply chain. Mm. All right, interesting insights. Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security, Ha. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence. And every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Maru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.